What is it? The main thing I got from it was like this sense of feeling seen and validated. Well, why does it have to be this way? This book was placed in my hand for this moment. Insightful, learned a lot, wrote some quotes that I'm ready to like paint on my wall. I love this book! That we just kind of pull out some, some of the big themes that we see and, and talk about a few different ones. I apologize if most of my contribution has K-pop references. Alternative book title, The Feminine Mystique Part 2. You were really just gay all along. <laughs> Welcome to Book Club. With Julia. And Victoria. Or those guys in your freshman English class who worshipped Hemingway like a god. You know the ones. You know. And even though we think your taste in literature is fine, we'd love to be your book friends. <laughs> This is a podcast for the books we just can't shut up about. And this week, we are reading Kim Ji-young, born 1982, by Cho Nam-ju, translated by Jamie Chang, a short feminist novel about social and structural inequalities women face in South Korea. This is a quick spoiler warning. If you haven't read the book yet and you care about spoilers, we will be talking about the full extent of this novel. So you have been warned. Um, if you haven't read the book yet, you are welcome to the party. We'd love to have you join. And maybe it'll inspire you to pick up the book yourself. Yeah. Yeah. If you'd like to support the show, you can rate, review, and subscribe on any and all podcast platforms. We are everywhere. If you want to help us out a little bit and you're perchance in the process of buying a book, you can go down into the links in the book links in any of our show notes, and that will take you to bookshop.org, our affiliate page on that website, which sources from independent bookstores, and we'll get a very small kickback. But if you want to join the club, if you want to join the book club, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash book club with JV. Become a member for as little as $3 a month. We've got tons of stuff on there. Currently, the things that are happening is we are saving up for a transcription service so that we can provide transcripts on our website for all of our episodes and make them as accessible as possible. The latest thing we posted was an episode of Film Club where we review book to TV or book to film adaptations and we reviewed the 2019 David Copperfield film with Dev Patel. Spoiler alert, we loved it. It was adorable. And we want to do the Daisy Jones and the Six adaptation. It's a lot more episodes than we thought we're gonna try and get do an episode on maybe the first three episodes and then we'll see how it goes so yeah come hang out we'd love to have you there and thank you to all of you who have like reached out over email or instagram in an apple podcast review to tell us what you like about the show it like makes our days (laughs) it is the kindest thing ever and so here's a a recent email from selen Sullen writes, hi, I recently discovered your podcast while I was researching on Dora Bruder, and I love the way you guys explain the little details and the way you were so excited to talk about it. So I wanted to recommend you a book that I would love to hear you talk about in an episode. It's called Monsieur Lin and His Child by Philippe Claudel. It is a great story about an elderly refugee who comes to France and his journey of finding something to hold on to in a city he doesn't speak the language. It is both a heartbreaking and heartwarming story. I hope you are well. All love. Thank you, Sullen. We love a recommendation. I will be adding this to my story graph to read list. If you want to write into the show, you can find us at Book Club with JV on Instagram or jvbookclub at gmail.com or through our website. We've got a little form. But anyways, thank you, dear listeners. We love you. We love you so much. Thanks for joining. Okay, so Julie and I had an epiphany recently, (laughs) and we're going to try something new here. We're going to start with our author bio and summary up top, because we move through those pretty quickly. It's some good grounding information. For those of you who haven't read the book, sometimes this is the moment where you're like, oh, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And so we're going to do that here. Our author today, Cho Namju, is a former television scriptwriter. In the writing of Kim Jong, born 1982, she drew partly on her own experience as a woman who quit her job to stay at home after giving birth to a child. Kim Jong, born 1982, is her third novel. It was published in Korea in October 2016, which we will get to the significance of the time that it was published shortly. It sold really well in Korea, was hitting, you know, a million sales very quickly. And so then eventually it started being translated to a bunch of different languages, including English. The U.S. English translation was published in 2020. 
and it was on the long list for the National Book Award Translated Literature, and it was adapted into a film in Korea in 2019, starring Jung Yoo-mi and Gong Yoo from Train to Busan! Uh, both of them from Train to Busan, and then Gong Yoo from Squid Games as well. So those two played the lead characters. I'm curious to watch it, especially as I read some articles that it was basically one of those films that was like polarizing mm. in many ways, where, you know, there was like some controversy on twitter and social media in korea where you know men were saying like if my girlfriend asks to go to this movie i'm breaking up with her and it like was a hit in the box office for women um but less so for men and yeah i find it not at all surprising (laughs) but also very interesting and i'm curious to watch the film but anyways tell us about this book I'm going to summarize out of order just so I can like explain what this book is. So Kim Ji-young is a very average woman in Korea. She's sort of meant to represent all women in a way. Her family was very firmly middle class, not in poverty, but they had to work very hard to stay that way with no generational wealth. She's married to a fairly decent guy with a well-paying job. When we meet Ji-young, she's just had a baby a few months ago and has been stuck at home after quitting her job with no social support and is starting to lose her mind. So she does this thing where she pretends to be other people and speaks kind of with their voice and their mannerisms and stuff. We learn at the end of the novel that she is sent to therapy by her husband and that the entire book is written as sort of patient notes by her psychiatrist, which we will get into. These notes detail the course of Kim Ji-young's life and all the different types of social and structural discrimination, microaggressions, sexual harassment, and other types of horrible treatment she experiences at the hands of men in childhood, adolescence, early adulthood, and marriage and motherhood. So those are kind of the four chapters, sections of the the body of the text is each of those age groups. And these experiences reflect the harsh realities of being a woman in South Korea at the time that it was published. Okay, so now we'll jump in. Julia, you were the one who brought this book to our podcast table. What was your experience reading? Yeah, I so I bought this last summer in Paris, and it's taken me six months to read it. I don't read the books that I buy right away. Usually, it's like they have to they have to get in the queue. So I'm glad that we finally had a reason to read it because I had heard this book recommended for fans of Korean media who like wanted to understand the cultural and social context of like the media that they were consuming and like the maybe scandals or different things that they were having maybe really unhelpful takes on on Twitter Um, (laughs) and just really not understanding like where these things are coming from and so people would like recommend this book and so it it was always kind of pitched to me as educational in a way and I think I didn't quite realize it would be so educational in tone because I thought mm-hmm. it would just be kind of a, a demonstration, like through the the style and the plot that you would kind of get the feeling of what it was like. But this is like, no, no, I'm going to explain to you what it's like. But, you know, it was a really easy read. It goes down really smooth, despite the fact that it makes you really angry. <laughs> You're just like fuming the whole time. Yeah, I think... I read it in little chunks. Like, I couldn't just, like, binge it. But it, you know, took me a few hours, maybe three sittings. And I I finished the book. I closed it. And I just sat there kind of like, huh. Like, I just felt a bit perplexed by some of the choices, um, which we'll get into. And I texted Victoria. I was like, I can't make up my mind how I feel about it yet. And so I'm hoping this conversation can, like, help me process some of those feelings. So I heard of it through you and I read it over, yeah, maybe two or three days, found it very easy read. It felt a lot different than a lot mm. of books I read. I think the the use of citations and like footnotes in a truly academic sense, you know, like we we enjoy a footnote. We love a footnote on this podcast. But in a novel, usually those footnotes are, you know, flavor text or a little like quirky insight, a little add on to the main story. But this was like, here's a thing that's happened to Kim Jong. This is representative of the whole or of of an average experience in Korea. Let me cite these studies about gender inequality in South Korea. So I felt really different. I definitely felt while I was reading the book, this like odd kind of like ringing bell in the back of my head where I was like, why are there citations? Like why... Why are we just like stating facts? Sometimes we're like pulling away from the, the, the novel's narrative to explain 
the social context in Korea. It mm-hmm. just felt really different in a novel setting for me. And I also, there was moments that felt like this would be a huge thing in Kim Jong's life, like the courtship with her now husband that are just kind of skimmed over. You know, the the narration kind of states the facts and then moves along. When we get to the turn that the psychiatrist is the one telling the story, that's where I see his hand a little bit, mm. potentially. Just in the sense that, like, oh, these are notes from, like, a psychiatrist trying to dig into what's at the core of this issue that's happening with this woman, where I could see how these parts that I'm like, wait, we're going to just skim over that seem like, Mm. oh, maybe that wasn't actually as relevant to the experience. Um, Because it does seem like she had a really positive relationship with her husband and that the courtship was a very positive experience. And so I guess for the novel to really highlight these moments in her life where blatant misogyny and discrimination are impacting her, spending a lot of time telling us how great her relationship with her husband was may have been kind of besides the point for a psychiatrist who's like trying to highlight all these moments in her life that have Mm -hmm. impacted her this way but the turn with the psychiatrist as the narrator at the end felt like a huge reveal for me like i did not feel like i saw that coming i even though i felt like oh something's a little different here like what's going on i wasn't like oh i know what's gonna happen it's gonna be your psychiatrist like i didn't i didn't have that you don't necessarily notice that there's something missing or that there's a mystery to be revealed to begin with. And so you're like, oh, like this choice was connected to something bigger than I thought. Speaking of author's choices, <laughs> we really just wanted to focus our discussion on sort of the the two voices that you can sort of feel competing for the role of narrator in this book. So we're going to start with the author as the narrator, and then we'll finish with the psychiatrist as the narrator, and the differences between where we see those two voices at play and kind of whether or not it works. Because so the, the thing about the author, the author's hand feels very present. You can feel the author trying to teach you things, right? Beyond just like a psychiatrist writing notes on things that have happened in a woman's life, you can feel the author, the author's hand above all of that being like, you need to understand this. This is something that maybe you don't, aren't aware of that you need to learn. Like Victoria mentioned, right, the the footnotes that actually cite actual like research and studies and statistics on women's experiences of discrimination in South Korea. And something that I thought was particularly interesting, which I'll read an example of, in those moments, often accompanied by a citation, by a footnote, there's a switch into present tense, where we were really coming out of the past tense, because the, the narrative is set in past tense. We're talking about her life in the past. And then the author will switch into present tense. So we move out of what Kim Ji-young was experiencing and into what women in Korea are currently experiencing. So we're, we disrupt the narrative and it feels more like a direct address to the reader. So I'm gonna read an example. Ji-young knew many mothers who began working again as soon as they could send their children to daycare. Some freelanced in their given field instead of working full time. Others went into the private education market by working as private tutors, cram school teachers, or tutoring small groups out of their own homes. The most common scenario was getting a part-time job such as a cashier, waitress, telemarketer, or service worker changing water purifier filters. And then we have this switch in the middle of the paragraph. According to reports, more than half of the women who quit their jobs are unable to find new work for more than five years. Even if they do manage to find new work, it is quite common for them to end up with jobs that are more menial than their previous employment. Compared to the jobs they had before childbirth, the ratio of women working in places with four or fewer employees doubles. Fewer women get manufacturing and office jobs, while a greater number end up in the hotel industry, restaurant businesses, and sales. Frequently, the pay also decreases. And then there's a citation at the bottom of the page for analysis of 2015 labor market by Korea Employment Information Services. So you can really hear there's, it's all in the same paragraph where the first half is in past tense and it's describing things that Kim Ji-young knows and has experience with. And then we pull out of that into present tense for the author to sort of explain to us the reader, here's what's going on in 
the present day that you're reading this, for women as a whole, here's a citation, like, so you, you feel like you're being educated about something. It feels almost journalistic in a way where you have yeah. the main story. So if you think of like a, like a feature piece in, in a newspaper or, mm. you know, a digital version, because who reads <laughs> newspaper anymore, where, you know, you got the central character, the central story where they're talking about like a single family or a single person. And then it, it breaks away to tell you like, this is just an anecdote about this larger thing. And usually in a news story, it's really about the larger thing. And the story is just a way to get there. Whereas this one, the story is really central. It's still very much a novel. It's not a news article. It's a fictional woman, but she's kind of painted as this average woman where her experiences are not extreme. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of the point is like she's not experiencing extreme meaning like above average or below average, just like very, very average discrimination in her life. And the author hand comes out not only as like, and Kim Jong is an average person. She's not just nailing that home. She's literally pulling in statistics to like mm -hmm. exemplify that this is an average experience. Yeah, even the worst of the sexual harassment and exploitation doesn't happen to her. It happens to the women in her office after she leaves. Mm -hmm. The cameras that get put in the bathroom, she's just adjacent to it. Like the, the worst things that happened to some people do not happen to her. She's very sort of down the middle in terms of these statistics, which I, I is interesting because, I mean, we, we just did an episode two episodes ago on nobody's normal and like how that idea of like the, the normal person, like the statistical norm, how we use that as like a representation of people. I feel like that's kind of what she's meant to be. She's meant to be yeah. the norma of South Korea. Which then I think highlights because she's also introduced to us at the very beginning as someone who's doing a very abnormal thing which yes. is she is not even realizing that she is taking on this personality of these other women around her and so there's like this hint of like this is it a psychotic break is it some sort of like magical realism thing where she's like speaking as if she is her mother or speaking as if she's her friend who has passed and her husband is like, this is crazy. This is all weird. And so I think it's interesting, too, that the author kind of juxtaposes this, quote unquote, crazy, you know, like, you know, the crazy woman kind of stereotype, like, oh, she's having a psychotic break. That's how we first meet her. And then her life is exemplified when we go back into the past to see, like, then she grew up in this family and mm. this was her experience at school and this is her experience at university and her experience in the working world like as completely average and normal. So I think that's kind of where the the commentary from the author gets really strong. Like we really see the hand of the author saying this could happen to anybody. See this really normal person. This is an, a normal experience, even if she looks quote unquote crazy. Yeah, and I think that's, you can feel that agenda and you can also feel, you know, as you pointed out, the, the language is not particularly detailed. We don't spend a ton of time with her feelings, but it also doesn't criticize her or overanalyze her. It's it's very accepting as, as sort mm -hmm. of... We're taking all of, we're not questioning any of her experiences. We're taking them all at face value as valid and real as if those experiences can speak for themselves. You know, so you don't necessarily feel the, pre and we'll get into this later, but you don't really feel when you're reading this book, you don't really feel the presence of another in-book character. You feel the presence of the author being like, here's all my evidence do with it what you will kind of thing. Like, so that made us wonder, like, what was the author trying to do? So in order to kind of understand more what the author's goal and audience were, we have to get some context. So Victoria went digging. I had so much fun yeah. on this episode. <laughs> I, I, was, I have so, I am the author of this episode with all my citations and my footnotes. Yeah. Like, check out our show notes for links to all these articles. I'll try to reference which ones I'm quoting at each time, but Mostly I'm quoting an article from the New York Times that interviews the author, an interview with the author from NPR, an article in The Guardian, as well as... Oh, and then I have some background research I did on the the current president in South Korea from oh. Time and an episode of Today Explained. As we mentioned up top, this was originally written in Korean and published for a Korean audience. It wasn't translated into English until about four years after it was published. 
So for some context, 2016 South Korea, situate yourself. What are you eating? What are you wearing? I was in college. I'm wearing my leggings and my oversized sorority sweatshirt. I'm calling Julia every week crying that I'm not in England anymore. (laughs) I'm not paying attention to world events in South Korea, but if I was, this is what was happening. In May of 2016, a woman was murdered in Gangnam Station. And on October that year, there were a lot of sexual harassment scandals in various areas of society, including literary and the arts, that kind of mirrored the Me Too movement that was happening in the U.S. as well. Mm. And so people were just starting to speak up more about these horrors and threats and discrimination against women um, that previously had not been spoken, at least not publicly and as loudly and as prominently as it was at this time in 2016. So if you're more familiar with the Me Too movement in the U.S., similar idea where like it's not like this has never been talked about. This is not like it's never been recognized, especially by women who are experiencing these things. But this is garnering a lot of public attention. A female prosecutor, So Ji Hyun, was speaking publicly in an interview on Korean television about being sexually harassed at work. And this really kind of opened up more and more conversations around this. And so this book was published in 2016 as well. So this book Mm. was part of this conversation. It came out in October 2016 at the same time this was happening. So I don't know the exact timeline of when the author wrote this book, but she did write it inside of three months. Like it was a very quick writing. And she said she never expected it to take off. Um, She didn't even know if she could get a book deal. She just knew. She says, quote, I just wanted this book to be in the bookshelves, in bookstores and the library as evidence of how women in this era the 2010s, lived, thought, and made efforts. So for her, this was like, I just need to get this written. I need to document what is happening in our our world. And it then happened to be published at the same time that this was like taking off in public discourse. And in the interview in the New York Times, the author comments that she specifically grounded this book in statistics so that the message wouldn't be dismissed as a made-up account of one woman's experience. Mm. So it was very, very intentional. Like we kind of, from our reading experience, like this feels very heavy-handed from the author. And the author's like, yes, that was the point. Um, (laughs) Which I get, you know, like to speak one story of discrimination, to give one anecdote of harassment can easily be dismissed as, well, that was your experience or not all men are that way. You know, like some very annoying dismissive behavior can happen. More than annoying, harmful dismissive behavior can happen. And the author was like, I'm going to cite statistics alongside my novel to make sure people know this isn't just Kim Jong's experience. This is a representation of a larger, larger pattern of behavior. That was kind of the world in which this book was launched. I particularly liked... I mean, obviously, I don't read Korean, so I'm reading a lot of American sources that are talking about this book. But it was also helpful for me because these journalists were doing a lot of the work of explaining, okay, as an American reader, this book might feel a little different or it might surprise you in certain ways that are not surprising to a Korean audience. So the NPR article pointed out, like, unlike here in the U.S. where we fracture over race discussions, Korea is 97% Korean. So gender is the primary dividing line. And uh, this novel effectively opened many young women's eyes to sex-based discrimination for the first time. I thought that part was particularly interesting and good to remember and to note. You know, like 2016 was a different time in the U.S. That was, you know, seven years ago at the time of this recording. And sometimes I think as readers, I know I can, I don't want to speak for others, bring in my current lens, my current ideas of the world and be like, of course we know these things. And like, Mm. this is just, you know, reaffirming things we already know, forgetting that sometimes these books or these pieces of art were on the forefront of having that conversation. A similar experience for some maybe looking at feminist writing from the 70s and being like, this doesn't go far enough. And it's like, That is true. And it was really going far Mm -hmm. at the time it was published. The NPR article gave an example from a woman who's at the time of the article was released 18 years old, a Korean woman who was at a underground bookstore where Kim Jong is on the bestseller table. And the reader said, I always thought the episodes in the book were ordinary. Then I realized maybe that isn't the way things should be. So this book was at the time of publishing, making a splash on a large level, but, you know, in the individual lives of women, too, that to recognize, like, oh, this is messed up. You know, sometimes you need someone to have that critical eye to point out to you, like, maybe things shouldn't be that way. Yeah, something. So Victoria was explaining all this to me the other day. And something that really, like, gave me some new context 
on some information I already had was that K-pop stars like Young of Girls' Generation, which is like, Girls' Generation is sort of one of the girl groups, and RM of BTS. One of the guy groups. <laughs> the group. So both of them praised the book and gave the book a major publicity boost. But the, for RM, he has been praised to high heaven for how much he has worked with feminist scholars on his lyrics and like how open he is about how his own journey in understanding gender inequality and stuff. Like all of his fans love him for it and he's given a platform and it's he's fine. But one of the members of Red Velvet, um, Irene, mentioned that she was reading it. She didn't even give her opinion on it. And her male fans, some of them, posted videos of themselves burning photos of her. Like she faced so much backlash for just saying that she was reading the book. And I heard about that and I didn't know what the cause of it was. And it's just really, it was very eye-opening for me to learn, to get some context on kind of like, you can even see the gender inequality in like who's allowed to be a feminist even. Mm. Like the the man is, and he gave the book a major boost and that's amazing. And he's he really is doing his best to be an ally, but like he doesn't have to suffer any of the consequences that the women do. And you'll see, you know, male groups can be a lot more political in their messaging and they can be a lot more they can push boundaries a lot more and women do as well but they get a lot more backlash and they get a lot more scary threats and negative consequences so it's kind of an, an arena where you see it playing out that it educated me a lot I think getting this kind of background and and that's kind of a, a microcosm of what happened as a whole. So like the book really blew up. And like in 2017, a member of South Korea's National Assembly bought copies of Kim Ji-young for the entire legislative body. And a politician with the left-wing Justice Party gave a, pro gave a copy to the president at the time, Moon Jae-in, uh, with a note imploring him to look after women like Kim Ji-young. So Kim Ji-young kind of became the sort of representative figure for all women. Maybe in like a similar way that we have like Rosie the Riveter, you know, as like yes. an idea of femininity and feminism in the US, like having a name, a fictional name, but representing like a larger movement and idea. Yeah, similarly, when the city of Seoul passed a new budget, with additional money for childcare, the city's mayor promised that there would be, quote, no more sorrow for Kim Jong. So it seems to be like it was quite the like rallying figure. But I also love the idea of someone like walking up and handing a book to someone and be like, you need to read this novel to change your ideas. And yeah. I'm like, the power of literature. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> like what a move. Like they bought a copy for everyone in, in their national assembly. Like that's amazing. I just It reminds me of there was someone I don't I'm gonna butcher the reference here, but someone somewhere bought copies of Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez uh -huh. and gave it to a bunch of local and big national level politicians in the UK. Oh my God. Like just like dropped it off at everyone's office. <laughs> and like, hello, you need to read this book. <laughs> I mean, they do. They do need to read yeah. it. Yeah. But <sighs> at the same time that there's like, you know, praise and public promotion and like this is, you know, a big cultural moment, like there's backlash. And we talked a little bit about like the K-pop backlash or the backlash against the K-pop star Irene. There was, you know, everything from like a crowdfunding effort to begin support for a parody book titled Kim Ji-hoon, born in 1990, about a young Korean man who faces reverse discrimination for being Ugh. a man. I, I was also I knew there was a recent presidential election in Korea last year. And I like vaguely was aware of it. But in prepping for this episode, I was like reading more about it. And like one of the, I mean, there's a lot of issues. Politics are never like a one issue thing, especially when it comes to electing a leader and a two like basically a two party system like they have in Korea. But one of the big rallying points for the the leader who was elected was around kind of anti-feminism, mm -hmm. rallying a base, especially of young men who feel like they're not being respected, that they're losing their power, that they're like kind of like fed up with the feminist movement. And the current leader of Korea was able to rally a lot of his base around these like anti-feminist ideas. So even though this book came out in 2016, and that's the context that we 
are mostly talking about here, this is still an issue and, and still like a huge divisive point in Korean politics as well. Yeah, so I feel like after learning all that, it really changes how you feel about the choices that the author made. Like, it, it might not have changed our... I'm curious if it would have changed our experience reading. I don't know. But it, it all makes sense. Like, she needed to write this, and it needed to be written. And, like, people needed access to this information. I mean, even just, just women needed access to this information about themselves, right? To, like, know that they're not alone you know, it, it it makes the choices she made really powerful in her context. It just, I don't know, reading this book and, and prepping for this episode just, I guess, helps me double down on my idea that like so many different lenses of reading can mm. be helpful in approaching a book. So coming at this book with like no context and not even looking up the author was like maybe not the most helpful way for me to read it. I think it would have been a really different experience and maybe I would have gotten more out of it and maybe I will with a second reread now with the context that I do have. This book is doing something in the cultural moment that it was written. So to understand the author and her perspective means a lot because if I assumed, which I don't know if anyone would, but if you assumed that the author was more similar to the psychiatrist who's the narrator, mm. what does that do to the book? Like that's where you and I felt this really strong push and pull in the book is reading the author as narrator, which felt really kind of intuitive and felt very like present. Like, oh gosh, this author is so present in this book. I cannot ignore her. Like it really like ripped at me. I don't know what to say when I realized it was psychiatrist, a male psychiatrist as the narrator. I was like, mm. it almost felt like a little violating. Like, wait, wait, wait. I yeah. thought it was a story about this woman and her experiences. And you're going to tell me that a man's been telling me this story this whole time. Like, I was trusting in this experience as being like her maybe unfiltered female experience. And now we're like saying that it was under this male gaze the whole time. Yeah, it feels it feels a little like an intrusion on this really important text and this really important information that I was being handed from the author. She was like, here, I need you to see me and see what's happening. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, it wasn't from the author, it was from this other guy. And yet at the same time, there you feel this major shift in mm -hmm. tone in the last section. When all of a sudden it's revealed he's the narrator, you suddenly feel his voice. So it, the revelation, yeah, it's huge. But it also, I don't know if it quite adds up to me. I didn't quite feel true <laughs> i don't know like i i had trouble with it because yeah you can hear him his voice and his tone and his opinions in particular you feel them a lot in the last section whereas i never felt reading the major body of the text or reading her story i never felt like the writing was ever critical of her or was ever ignorant you know of like saying saying dumb shit about her experience and invalidating it in any way. It felt, you know, like a real carefully treated, if sparse kind of representation of her story. And also something that didn't make sense to me was the fact that you would think there would be more like analysis of her mind in the tale of like trying to figure out because we're presented with her having this kind of psychotic break and then we're told the whole story of her life. I was assuming to sort of lead up to the point when she finally loses it and to see how it happened. And then if this is being written by her psychiatrist, like presumably he's doing the same thing, right? So like wouldn't his commentary about where things came from and why things were happening, wouldn't that be in there? Yeah. Of his own uh, professional opinions? And she starts, you know, at the beginning of the book, we're seeing her unknowingly impersonating these other women in her life. And very specifically, she's impersonating a friend of her and her husband's that has died. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a plot point. Like, this is going to be very interesting. We're going to find out how she died. We're going to find out, like, what kind of impact that had on Kim Jong. And then we don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't even know if in the narrative of, like, her life that we talk about how her friend died. Do we? 
But we don't we don't see it happen in real time. I wasn't sure if it was implied that she like did it herself. Oh, yeah, I don't know. But I don't know if it ever says that. So yeah, it's interesting that like what felt like the catalyst of this whole book, which was these psychotic breaks, that they're not really addressed. Like the ending is much more about this like moment when you're like all of a sudden the camera pans back and you realize the hand writing this. Mm-hmm. is the male psychiatrist and we're like wait we didn't feel his hand in the narration of her life but we definitely feel it in this epilogue or yeah. this last section where holy cow it's like it's like in the, that's the part that feels particularly infuriating too it's because yes. he's ostensibly the one making these citations is aware of her life is writing about how she has faced discrimination and then immediately pulls back and is like full of hypocrisy. <laughs> and like maybe that's the point is, you know, like is the author calling out, hey, we have all this data about gender discrimination in our country that people are well aware of because people are conducting these studies. But even the people who are aware that this is happening are complicit in it continuing. Oh, he's so infuriating. He's so infuriating because he's (laughs) – I feel like what's missing in the majority of the text is the male gaze, which for those of you who may have heard it or not but aren't sure how it's defined, it's a concept originally coined by John Berger and later picked up by feminist theorist Laura Mulvey to describe how women are treated as objects – in art, film, and literature, because they're being constructed by and viewed by men on the other side of these sort of metaphorical camera. And you can feel that male gaze in the last section, because he does not see any correlation between his behavior and his attitudes and the really difficult experiences and frustrating experiences that his wife and his coworker are going through. And he experiences this sort of surprise of like, how could I have possibly known that women were having a hard time? How could I have known until I heard this story and did all this research? How could I possibly have known? And then we get all these details about his wife going through the exact same things that Kim Ji-young was and the way that he describes them are not at all like how he describes the ones Kim Ji-young goes through. They're not sympathetic. They're completely blind in terms of like why they're happening or what she might be feeling in particular. He just does not empathize at all. He just always brings it back to himself. Yeah, and he doesn't see it as, like, he even says something along the lines of, like, I, I'm i kind of privileged to have this experience. Like, you know, most men do not know these things. I only know it because this is my line of work and I studied it and researched it. Um, because, of course, men who are not wouldn't know these things about women because they're not involved in childbirth and child rearing. <sighs> and it's like, that's kind of the point. Like, the lack of your involvement in care is, is half the problem because you're not around to see it. I mean, this chat, the last, the sort of epilogue is a major call out because it's like, you have all these women in your life who are trying to tell you what they want, what's wrong, why things are really hard. And you, even though you have access to this information, are like, you could have learned all this just by talking to them and Mm -hmm. you don't. He like complains about how his wife is like trying to find who loved math and was like a genius, way smarter than him. He's complaining that his wife is doing like little math textbooks for elementary school kids because it's the one thing uh, that brings her joy in her life. So she does it late at night. And he complains that she's not putting her brilliant mind to better use and then proceeds to never be home and never spend any time with his child more than like 30 minutes a day. Yeah, I'm going to read because the way that it's narrated is so unsympathetic to his wife's arguments. There's just such a such a tone shift from the rest of the book. So here, his son is having some behavioral problems. And so it says the teacher suspected ADHD and I disagreed but she wouldn't listen to me. He says, I'm a psychiatric specialist. You ra- you'd you rather believe the teacher? 
Seething in silence for a moment, my wife glared at me and said, you see the patient, look them in the eye and listen to them to get a diagnosis. You spend maybe 10 minutes a day with the boy and you're glued to your phone the entire 10 minutes you're sitting with him. How could you possibly know? You can tell by watching him sleep, listening to his breathing. You possessed? You a psychic? Not a psychiatrist? In my defense, I was very busy around that time because my practice has re had relocated and expanded. I had emails and messages I had to keep tabs on using my phone, and I sometimes checked the news while I had the phone out, but I swear I never played games or chatted on the phone. Anyway, everything she said was true, so I had nothing to say. I didn't see the connection between my wife working and the boy being distracted, but the teacher prescribed stay-at-home mummy at least for the first half of elementary school, and my wife took a break from work. She got up even earlier than she did for work to make our son's breakfast and wake him up and wash him herself, feed and clothe him, drop him off at school, pick him up from school, and have art and piano tutors come by for lessons. At night, she slept with the boy in his room. She said she'd return to work when he got better and that she'd had a talk with a senior colleague and arranged a position for when she was ready to go back. She called up that colleague not long thereafter to cancel. He's not showing improvement, she said. And then the last little bit that I made me so angry about the, her doing the math textbooks. My wife is still doing the math workbooks and I wish she'd do something more interesting, something she's good at, that she likes, that she really wants to do, not something she does because there's nothing else. I wish the same for Kim Ji-young. Like, my dude, you are the reason that she can't do anything she wants. <laughs> Just so unaware. No self-awareness whatsoever. And I think there's so much packed into that section that you read, but a mm -hmm. couple things that stood out to me is, one, is not only is she a stay-at-home mom to care for their son, but this is a son who has what is kind of like diagnosed or maybe alluded to by his teacher as ADHD. So he's a neurodiverse child mm -hmm. who needs additional support in his life. And both the teacher and her husband see the only solution as well i guess the mom will just stay with him all the time highlighting the need for childcare support mm -hmm. for not just all children i mean that too but specifically for children with disabilities and children who need extra support putting all of that work on the mother is exhausting and then continues to like especially if he was she was oh, what gets me is the like i don't know how this was translated from korean and like the cultural context of what it what it means there but to say like prescribed stay-at-home mom just continues to place the burden on the mother as like if your child doesn't get better it's because you're not being a better stay-at-home mom yeah the school refuses to do anything the dad who's literally a psychiatrist refuses to do anything or spend any more time with him and it's sort of implied in the way the teacher says it in the way that the narrator says it, that it's kind of the mom's fault for being a working mom. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's her fault that he's like this because she was never home. On top of that, I think this double standard we we put on a lot of women, uh, especially highly educated women who have, you know, gone on to have advanced degrees, they've had a career, this idea of like, you need to keep up that rigor mm. of like mental, academic, career achievement. It's almost as if she's letting him down by yes. not doing it. And it's like, she's probably feel like she left her, let herself down. Yeah. Like you don't need to pile that on her. And if you really do care about her having the opportunity to be an individual invested in like creating something new or you know advancing her field or exploring the unknown of mathematics what are you doing to support that in her life instead of just holding her to the standard of like well you used to be smart but then you had a kid and now you're dumb Ugh, very frustrating like you can see so much blindness in this particular narrative narrative voice he, he expects her to be everything, to be the working woman who is sort of achieving all of her goals and dreams and her potential, and also a stay-at-home mom who, like, solves all of her son's problems, and he doesn't see the contradiction in that. And, like, there's a, a kind of dramatic irony in the way that he talks, where, like, we as the reader can see that her doing those textbooks is just her to try and carve out any tiny morsel of any enjoyment in her life for herself. We can see that. And the narrator clearly does not. And you don't get that kind of irony in the rest of the book, you know? Mm -hmm. So, like, 
I don't know. I, I, I kind of go back and forth of like, could he have narrated the rest? He's really, really off base, but he is still kind of sympathetic to the main character in the sense that he, he sort of has these hopes for her that things will get better, but he doesn't, he's totally unwilling to do any of the things himself in the world, the structural things that could change that, or even in his own personal relationships. So I guess if we don't get any of his voice, if we're just getting the sort of scholarly academic side, I guess it could work. I don't know. For me, both elements seem so important to kind of getting the message across, if we want to say it's a message, but getting the, the, you know, the core argument of the book across, which is, this is an experience of a woman. Here's a very singular story to draw in your ability to relate your emotional attachment to one individual character. Here is all the supporting evidence to exemplify that she is just an example of what is very common for women in South Korea. I think if you had just that narrative on its own, it wouldn't hit as hard. And I don't think it would have been this like cultural moment. Mm. If you didn't have this point where the camera flips and you realize this man who is who otherwise thinks of himself well, he doesn't identify as an anti-feminist. He doesn't identify as a woman hater or something ridiculous. He sees himself as maybe an average man. Mm -hmm. And I think that camera flip is really crucial to helping and directing, especially male readers, but even women readers at like oh, what am I doing that is contributing to this problem? Or what do what are people in my life doing that are contributing to this problem that we think is just the way things have to be? Mm. You know, I'm reminded a lot of what we talked about in the Nobody's Normal episode around how culture is created by people. People yeah. create the culture. People can change the culture. And I think by giving the psychiatrist a face, even if it's a very quick glimpse into his life, we get a whole book about Kim Jong and her family. We get one section on him and his family, only from his point of view. I think it helps just drive the message home that like we created this problem and we continue to be a part of this problem. And not one individual woman is responsible for this in the same way like one individual man isn't responsible for it. But collectively, our society has created this culture. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a good point. It's It's a very powerful turn. Raises a lot of thoughts and conversation, clearly. That's what we spent the whole time trying to figure out. And, you know, it, it makes a very good point, for sure. So I do agree that you do need both. And I do wonder if we lose any, like, subtle tone things in translation. If Korean readers wouldn't have been that surprised that mm -hmm. he was the one telling the story. I don't know. You definitely need it. I agree. You definitely need it. And it's, yeah, it's a very powerful way to conclude the book because it, it makes the reader complicit. It's like, well, what are you going to do with this information? And people did something with it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for people who enjoyed this book or this topic or anything related, what would you recommend they check out next? Yeah, I think the next thing we're going to do is probably watch the film adaptation. So go check that out. It's got some big names. This book made me think a bit of Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. Totally different style, obviously, but it's like one woman's sort of life and how it's sort of interconnected with all these like social things and there, there's a feminist sort of leaning of like one woman representing many in a way, I guess. And then we'll put it in the show notes, but I found an amazing list of Korean novels and translations that all look great. But there's one in particular that's like a really dark feminist novel written by a contemporary of Cho Namju. It's called Violets by Shin Kyung Suk. And that one looks very good. That one's the next one for me. I mentioned Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. If you're looking for more of the data and research and statistics behind the lack of women in data, um, it, it is pretty international in scope, but does mostly look at the UK and US. I also recently read Foundations by Abigail Stewart. It's a novel told in three parts with like a three different women who in different decades own the same house. So it's an interesting look at the American female experience in, in different decades and, and kind of how they face some similar challenges, I guess, over time. It's, it's an interesting read. I think the first two sections were really strong. The third section that's set in present day, even though it should be the most relatable because it was set by it was like someone who's the same age and very similar life as me. I just didn't resonate with as much. Mm. But it made me think of that. Another novel I read recently that this book made me think of was Marriage of a Thousand Lies by S.J. Sindhu. 
It's a book about a queer Sri Lankan uh, American woman who is married to a man. <laughs> her and her gay husband are kind of hiding their queerness. So it's about feminism. It's about queerness. It's about immigrant identity, but also a great feminist read. Lastly, currently obsessed. Mm. What are the things that are bringing you joy these days? This was something I recommended the last episode, but I just, the series just finished. Um, so I'm recommending it again. Moonlight Chicken. It's a Thai drama on YouTube. Or in some countries, it's on Disney Plus, but not here. They really stuck the landing. It's It ended up being way more of a comfort show than I even expected. And really, I think if what you're looking for is a show that is all about tackling, but also kind of healing the sort of different generations of queer people and like the way things have changed and the kind of intergenerational conflicts that we have, it does that so well, more than anything else in the story. I feel like if that is something that interests you, you should watch the show. And then talk about negative experiences of women in South Korea. The Glory on Netflix. It's like a really dark revenge fantasy. If you've ever wanted to murder all your bullies, this is the show for you. I'm not done with it, but it's very good. And then this weekend, I got concert tickets to see Sugar in Chicago. So I'm going to see Victoria. Woo-woo. I'm so Me excited. Me and my other friend are going to go and I'm probably going to cry. And I'm so stoked. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited for you. It, it was an emotional roller coaster of a week, let me tell you. Anyone else listening who managed to get or not get tickets, I was there in the trenches with you. It was a journey. <laughs> but we did it. So what have you been into? My partner and I have been playing a lot of Minecraft Dungeons on Nintendo Switch. I don't play a lot of video games, but man, Minecraft has been fun. <laughs> Minecraft Dungeons. Uh, you're just exploring around with your cool armor. I have a pet pig that follows me everywhere. <laughs> and I have the my favorite like power-up weapon thing is... I don't know what it's called. I don't play video games enough. I can drop a beehive and all my bees start attacking. <laughs> They're like on my side. And they start attacking the enemy, <laughs> and it's so fun. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And even playing on, like, the, the normal mode, like, we didn't play it, like, on easy. It was, like, very approachable for someone like myself who plays, like, no video games besides, like, Animal Crossing, which does not require, <laughs> like, hand-eye coordination to kill the, the evil illagers, which are the enemies of this game. I started reading Babel by R.F. Kuang, which Julie and I have plans to talk about here on the podcast, but I'm really enjoying it and I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. I haven't started it, but I'm excited. Thank you for listening to Book Club with Julie and Victoria. We would love to hear your thoughts on this book or the topic we discussed. So you can share your review and recommendations with us on Instagram at bookclubwithjv, on our website, bookclubwithjv.com, or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit our website for show notes with links to all of the recommendations and the things we're going to enjoy. If you don't already, go ahead and follow us on whichever podcast platform you are listening on so that you can be notified when our next episode is released. This episode was co-hosted and produced by myself, Victoria Brewer, along with Julia Clausen. Rebecca Gasney provides us with project management support. Our music is composed by Greg Burek, and our logo was designed by Gabby Fablin. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>